Welcome to another edition of Building Local Power. I'm John Farrell, co-director of the Institute for Local Self-Reliance. This week, we're talking about Puerto Rico. The island was ravaged by Hurricane Maria in September 2017, but also by a colonial past and present. I speak with Marcel Castro Citerice, co-director of COHIMIS at the University of Puerto Rico, Mayaguez, about the challenges the island faces in building a clean and resilient energy system, despite an unresponsive utility and an island government with limited self-determination. Welcome, Marcel. Thank you for having me here. I think most people are familiar because it was such a big news story at the time that the power was out for a long time on Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria struck in September 2017. Uh, I was hoping that you could start us off by helping people understand a few reasons that it took nearly a year to reconnect power to the last customer when the same hurricane also hit Florida, but power was restored much more quickly. Yeah, this is a very important question and something that I have uh, looked at, uh, experiencing a part of it, part of the blackout. I, I recovered the power in my house 90 days after Hurricane Maria. But the reasons are, are many, but there is one uh, particular one uh, that uh, affects us. The, the system is centralized. And the, the system in other places are also centralized, but the centralized nature in Puerto Rico uh, plays a major role in terms of recovering back. Now, there are uh, other reasons why it took much longer than, than other places. For example, even before Hurricane Maria, uh, PREPA was already diminished by austerity measures. So there were, there were less things in stock to, to replace uh, poles and, and materials, and also there was less personnel uh, working with PREPAS compared to 20 years ago when, when George's uh, impact us. Another important thing is that Maria was very strong. Uh, when it got to Florida, was, it was not as, as strong as when it hit Puerto Rico. And, and just looking at the, the average wind speed over land that the impact lab uh, estimated uh, throughout the whole Puerto Rico uh, land area, only five storms were more intense than Maria, and they were all in the Pacific Ocean. That is from the 1950s until now. So when we look at, at, at that, it's, it's a, it was a very strong uh, hurricane. Also, the devastation due to trees falling and landslides. There were thousands of landslides all across Puerto Rico, but particularly in the center of the island where recovery efforts uh, took longer to get and restoration took uh, months, almost a year. In addition to that, we had a slow start. A government didn't call for mutual aid uh, for more than a month. It took six weeks uh, for, for the government to, to call on mutual aid assistance, and that hampered the recovery efforts uh, in the beginning. The official version is that the, the private companies uh, could jump in without uh, uh, matching or, or, or putting some money up front from the Puerto Rico uh, government side, uh, but there might be other issues involved. For example, the idea to make PREPA private. And I think everybody was aware that whoever restores your power is going to have a great impact on your mentality, on and, and your perception of, of who helped you recover power. Is it a, power, a public power utility in the U.S., or is it a private uh, utility? And I think that mm -hmm. played a role in, in that decision. But 
I'm speculating about that, uh, but it is possible. The other uh, thing is that we are a remote island, so the support crews could not drive from other states to help Puerto Rico, so they had to take a, a combined boat, and, and that takes longer, it's more expensive. Um, so that's another thing that uh, limited the, the quick response that sometimes uh, the, uh, the states get. And finally, the, the rough terrain. The rural mountain areas are really hard to get because the prepa workers were less, so the people coming from places like Florida, uh, they don't have experience with this uh, mountain terrains that you can find in Hayuya, Orocovi, Sutuado, and that is something that also I think play a major role in the uh, what I call is the longest blackout ever in, in the world. That I have never heard of a, a power outage that lasts 329 days. You know, that leads me to the one of the questions I had about um, something that you're looking at, which is kind of a novel perspective on how we might approach the solution. So there's been lots of talk, you know, you mentioned about privatizing the utility prepa uh, that had been happening even before the hurricane, but is now uh, a big discussion. There's a lot of conversation about microgrids, and I'll ask you in a little bit later about some new rules uh, that the Islands Energy Bureau has come up with for um, for these miniature grids. Um, but you've created a, a, a pretty interesting uh document looking at the problem by focusing on the hours of lost electricity. So you just mentioned it was the longest blackout ever. Um, Tell me a little bit more about what you've been trying to track in terms of how this blackout impacted and and then how that's allowing you to focus on approaching this, solving this problem in a different way. Yes, yes. Actually, um, the first time I, I read about the customer hours of lost electricity service was a report by Rodium Group that they, they mentioned that uh, already by October, uh, so a, a little bit more than a month after Hurricane Maria, they already estimated that, that the Hurricane Maria created the, uh, the largest blackout in U.S. history. Now, so there's a difference between the the biggest or the largest with the longest, right? You can have a a very Mm -hmm. long blackout for a few people. That doesn't make it the the biggest. So the good thing of using customer hours of lost electricity service is that uh, you take in consideration massive blackouts that sometimes leaves millions of of people without power for a few hours. Uh, But also you can compare that with maybe smaller, uh, like... uh, amount of people or customers losing power, but for extended periods of time. So when we look at uh, the customers' hours of uh, lost electricity service, which I call Choles, uh, sort of uh, to make it short, mm-hmm. Hurricane Maria was uh, already above 1,200,000 uh, Choles on October uh, 2018. And by April, a Rodion Group reported that, that it was already the second uh, largest uh, blackout in, in the world. Uh, only Typhoon Haiyan in the Philippines had more than 6,000 uh, choles. But we have to keep in mind that the Philippines uh, has a population of 100 million people as compared to the less than 4 million people in, in Puerto Rico. So then I started looking at how this could be used to make better decisions, and also now how to best distribute the recovery funds that 
we hope at some point get to the people that that need it the most. And that brings some interesting numbers. For example, uh, I divided the the groups of customers in Puerto Rico in three, and the last 200,000 customers that represent on 14% of the total of, of the customers of PREPA uh, contributed about a third of the total uh, choles, which are about 3,000. Uh, in my estimate, I have a conservative estimate of 3,000, but um, other estimates put it more like uh, 3,400 million uh, choles. Uh, I have about uh, 3,000 million. And so it is, it is a lot. It's, it's, uh, I estimated 928,000 million choles for only those 200,000 customers that spent more than five months without electricity. Now, when we think of what should we do and how much it will cost to fix that vulnerability, uh, we should keep in mind that with Hurricane George's, the estimated total number of, of customers' hours of lost electricity services about 1,000 million. So it's very close for the whole Hurricane George's that devastated Puerto Rico in 1998. It's very close to the last 200,000 families uh, that, that, that the last one that recovered power after Hurricane Maria. And to put that in context with other events, uh, with Sandy, there were 775 million choles. With Hugo uh, in 1989, that's the first one I remember in mm -hmm. Puerto Rico, it was about 700 million choles. And with Katrina, for example, it was 681 million choles. So when we put that uh, in context, I think that the numbers are really mind-blowing, and we need to really think how to best invest to cover the vulnerability of these last 200,000 families, but also all Puerto Rico. So we're talking, just to make sure I understand this, we're talking about a thousand times more hours without electricity due to Hurricane Maria than some of these other very significant hurricanes. Is that right? It, okay, so if we look at the whole Hurricane Maria, it's about 3,000 million. Mm -hmm. uh, that's a rough estimate. And Hurricane uh, Sandy was uh, 775 million. So, so it's uh, about uh, four times more. Maria, uh, Maria's total is four times more than, than Sandy. Okay. Uh, so, and, and for example, compared to Georgia's, which was also in Puerto Rico, uh, so it's three times more. more. Uh, because we're talking about millions of choles. So it's like 1,000 million of choles yep. for Georgia's, 3,000 million uh, choles for Maria. Okay, this is very helpful. Thank you for clarifying that. So you had you had mentioned about you know, well, let me cover a couple of different things here. So one is that, you know, this particular subset of customers who waited the longest to get the power back on is you know the most vulnerable. And you know, I looked at the um, document that you've prepared about Choles, and you talk about this these two hundred thousand customers contributing. You know, they're very small fraction of the total population. You said about 14%, and yet they contributed about a third of the total hours lost. Can you describe a little bit about where are those folks on the island? Where are they living? And why was it so hard to uh, get electricity reconnected for them? 
we look at the location of, of the communities that were connected last with, with my students. We started looking uh, backwards, so, uh, starting August 14th, which was the, the, the very last family that was reconnected to PREPA in a place that is close to the highest peak uh, in Puerto Rico called Cerro Puntas. And the, the location of those last communities, uh, we look at uh, the people that got power back uh, on May, uh, June, July, and August. And they are uh, in the center of the island, in the, in the very uh, rough mountain, uh, remote areas in, in the rural parts, and also in the southeast of Puerto Rico, where, for example, Yabucoa, where, where the hurricane came in. And I, I was thinking about that when I look at, at the percentage of restoration throughout the recovery process, the restoration process. And the southeastern coast of Puerto Rico, which, by the way, is, is, is beautiful. There is a nice road to, to go there um, because you can drive at a high altitude very close to the, to the ocean. Uh, which also makes it difficult because that means that, that there is that corner of the island that receives a very strong winds or, or stronger than the rest of the island. And at the same time, they are mainly a mountain uh, rural areas. So you have those uh, factors combined of, of having mountain uh, areas with uh, stronger winds than, than the rest of the island. And, and based on that, what I would like to see is uh, prioritize these families because there are many plans of 100% renewable uh, in 2050, um, but I want to focus more on what we can do in the next one to two years to cover this vulnerability with technology that already exists. And so what you have put together is a suggestion that we focus on in terms of addressing those those families that we look at solar and battery installations for those folks as a way of both distributing renewable energy systems. It's a way to use recovery dollars that will focus on the folks that are hardest to reach in the long run who suffered the most from the hurricane and also can be deployed relatively quickly, which is important because, of course, another hurricane season is coming in just a few months and there's no way of knowing whether or not there's another Maria in store for Puerto Rico. Exactly. I think we have an opportunity. Um, the, the problem with opportunities uh, is that they are that, right? So if uh, the opportunity could be uh, taking uh, advantage of or it can become a lost opportunity. And now we have the opportunity to uh, use the recovery funds that should come to help have more resilient communities uh, I'm focusing on the area of energy, but it should apply to other things too, in having water and food and shelter. But, but in terms of energy, we can cover that vulnerability with technology that is also going to support a more sustainable community in the long term, because then you're going to have um, a, a, local, a locally generated energy at a competitive price or a com- competitive cost that is much more resilient in, in the case of a strong hurricane coming. Um, this is important because uh, it could give us a, a window into the future what, what would be needed in other places in the United States afterward. Uh, we have two specific 
issues to address that are particular Puerto Rico and, and that is the vulnerability to hurricanes and also the high cost of electricity from the grid. Now, there are projections, uh, for example, the Homer Energy and Rocky Mountain Institute uh, did a, a work on, on grid defection, the economics of grid defection, and they predicted that in a couple of decades, uh, there are many cities that are going to be challenged or, or the utility model is going to be challenging those cities by decreasing price of solar with uh, storage. Now, that already happened in Hawaii, and it is happening now in, in Puerto Rico. Uh, if we do things right in Puerto Rico, it could serve as a model for other cities to follow, uh, especially when solar with batteries uh, become a real challenge to the, to the grid. And we don't need to make it all cutthroat competition. We should try to collaborate and make the transition to what makes more sense for the customers and for the families. So I want to ask kind of a, a pointed question here, which is, you know, it's been a year and a half since the hurricane hit, and obviously there was a lot of news and a lot of discussion about how long it took the initial recovery money, the disaster recovery money to reach Puerto Rico and for the grid to be rebuilt, uh, and unfortunately largely rebuilt in the same structure that it was before, as you mentioned, this the centralized system that leaves it fairly vulnerable to hurricanes. Um, when, what are the funds that are still expected for Puerto Rico and when are they expected to come that would allow investment in uh, a new version of the grid that would be more resilient and, and reliable? So what we have now in place that has been approved is $436 million uh, US dollars that could be used for solar systems in the rooftop of houses and batteries. Uh, that is already approved. Um, the, the mechanism to, to disimburse or to, to enable that to happen is still a, a, an ongoing process. Um, but those 436 million, I understand that uh, are, are going to be available at some point, hopefully in the short term, but, but we don't know. Now, there are an additional, it's almost $2 billion, $1.9 billion, uh, on, uh, that, that, that's also CDBG funds, I, I should say. This is CDBG funds um, that comes from, from HUD. Uh, the, there is a future amendment to the action plan. Uh, we already have two amendments, and, and those $436 million are in, in that. So the next $1.9 billion is in a future amendment, uh, and that 1.9 billion is supposed to go for for the electric grid, but not for prepa. Uh, so uh, that is less defined. It's just they were just mentioned mentioned that. Uh, so I'm thinking it could be energy co-ops or or also private um, organizations. I hope that a lot of that money is used to put power on the ha the rooftops of houses and, and small business. Uh, because when we're talking about $2 billion, that, that is something you can cover uh, 200,000 houses with small systems and, and some business as well. Um, beyond that, there are also maybe about $20 uh, billion from FEMA that is expected to go to PREPA. 
And that one is more uncertain because I haven't seen any action plan for that. So, so I'm not aware of, of what's going to be done with those money. There, there are a lot of talking about mini grids, which I, I don't think is uh, the best investment because it doesn't address the vulnerability of the distribution system at the lowest level. And also natural gas infrastructure, which I, again, I think those things should be considered once you cover the vulnerability at the household level, the business uh, that needed, uh, and then also at community level, and then you, you consider other other options. That's what I read in the different uh, plans, uh, but but there is uncertainty on of how much is really going to come, and also when are they going to come. Um, I'm, I'm worried that we're not that many months away from the peak of the 2019 hurricane season, and and I worry about those 200,000 families that, that need to be taken care of some way or the other. We're going to take a short break. When we return, we'll discuss Puerto Rico's colonial past and present, and how the locals are fighting to overcome those challenges to build an energy system that works for everyone. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Building Local Power with Marcel Castro Citerice, co-director of Cohimas at the University of Puerto Rico, Mayaguez. Hey, do you think you'd be a great guest on Building Local Power? Dying to tell Chris Mitchell what he could do better? Wanted to share some love? Email us at podcast at ilsr.org. You can also send your love with a small donation. If you listen to other podcasts, you might hear about a mattress company or a meal delivery service. But the Institute for Local Self-Reliance is a national organization that supports local economies, so we don't accept national advertising. Instead, please consider making a donation to ILSR. Not only does your support underwrite this podcast, but it also helps us produce all of the resources, from reports to podcasts to interactive maps, we make available for free on our website. Please take a minute and go to ilsr.org donate. Any amount is welcome and sincerely appreciated. That's ilsr.org slash donate. We also value your reviews on Stitcher, iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you so much. Now let's hear about the impact of Puerto Rico's colonial past on its present efforts to build an energy system for everyone. So I wanted to take a minute to just give folks a little bit of background about why this is such a challenge, not just in terms of the structure of the grid and the geography of the country that make it difficult to build a resilient energy system. Um, but also that, uh, you know, you, and you alluded to this, you, you mentioned this a little bit earlier about PREPA being, uh, you know, under an austerity plan that has many fewer employees and resources than it had, for example, 20 years ago with Hurricane George's. And I think one thing I want to make sure listeners understand is that part of the utilities problems come from, the island's colonial past. This was something I talked about briefly at the Black Start Conference and others have also discussed as well. Uh, So for example, the island's last federally appointed governor set a precedent of giving free electricity to cities and to city-owned properties, uh, something that costs each PREPA customer over $100 per year, money that could otherwise be invested in in infrastructure or in microgrids or, or solar um, and so it sounds that in some ways that PREPA has also, you, you not only have this, 
some sort of legacy decisions uh, uh, that are the result of Puerto Rico having this unique status as a, as a U.S. territory but not a state and, and decisions that are being made. You have um, the federal PROMESA law that, um, had, you know, we have a, f- a financial oversight board that is, that even though it doesn't have any representatives from Puerto Rico, it, it makes decisions about the financial health of the island. Um, so, so we have that background. Um, I'm just curious, you know, you, you mentioned, you know, PREPA is going to hopefully get some of resources from FEMA going forward. There's also, as you mentioned, I think a lot of hope that there will be investments made that are not controlled by PREPA. What do you think PREPA could do, uh, if it, if it was, uh, going to spend that money well, uh, to make, to, to support a cleaner and more affordable energy system? This is a crucial issue. You, you mentioned the colonial past, the problems of the colonial past, uh, and also you mentioned the uh, federal uh, board. I call it the federal board, and I think it has been decided by the court that it's a federal entity, mm-hmm. uh, even though it was not recognized as such uh, originally. Um, and that, I would say, represents the problems of our colonial present, because <laughs> we, we're still in that right. colonial uh, stage. And some people were not sure about that, but after 2015, 16, I think it's been clarified time and again that that we are a colony of the United States. Um, now, about PREPA. Uh, PREPA is, is really a complex issue because to start with, when we talk about PREPA, who, who are we talking about, right? Uh, when we say PREPA should do this or PREPA should do that, are we talking about the workers of PREPA? Are we talking about those that are the administrators of PREPA, or we're talking about the governments that appoints the governing board and always change laws to take control of that uh, governing board uh, of PREPA and the high-level executives that that the government appoints, Um, or are we talking about the people that should, in theory, control the public power company that is PREPA? And that, that is not an easy issue to solve, but the the main problem has been that the way prepa has been controlled is in favor of the political party that is in power for example i remember talking to other colleagues here at the university in the power area like why the rate has not been increased something like maybe 20 years ago 3 cents per kilowatt hour and the only reason is for political reasons. If you increase the rate, you lose the election, so then you don't increase the rate. Actually, you there, there are instances even where the rate was reduced uh, with a loan one month before the election. In I think that was uh, 2012. And so that has been a problem uh, with PREPA because if those that make decisions on PREPA are thinking of winning the election, then you are not going to uh, revise the incentive, uh, for example, for municipalities, because the, the uh, leaders in the municipal governments do have a political power and, and can change the outcome of the election. Um, and we might do only what seems best in the short term, in four-year periods, and not what is needed in the long term. Um, and this is not exclusive of PREPA. About, I believe, more than a year ago, PREPA went with the government and with the uh, Fiscal Oversight and Management Board to Judge Taylor Swain 
to request an approval for a loan of $1 billion. The, it was not approved, but they did approve $300 million because they were going to run out of fuel. They didn't have credit to, to do it. Now, this is a monopoly. And question, how can you make a monopoly bankrupt? But the same thing could be said of, of the board when they go to ask for a loan instead of raising the, the price. They did not want to raise the cost per kilowatt hour because, and this, I'm assuming this, it will, be a, it will create a backlash of, for the privatization process that they wanted to push. Also, didn't act as a, a business that has a monopoly, and they went and get a loan for this. The, the main problem with, with PREPA management has been uh, looking at short-term, four-year periods. And the other problem is that the same people that create this problem, which is the decision-makers, now they want to privatize PREPA. So instead of solving the issue that they created, they privatize without giving any reason to or study to believe that the rates are going to come down. So they, they, we are promised that the, the rates are going to come down, and that's what politicians have been doing, uh, not raising the, the rates that should have come up 20 years ago and would not have a $9 billion debt. Uh, but it's now what what should be done now? What can PREPA do? It's it's the PREPA need to do some some things that that might not be uh, very popular, uh, like increasing the 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 cost per kilowatt hour. But it should be done in a sensible way. It's like what are we getting for that? Are we getting a more resilient grid for for this increase, or are we not getting an, an increase because we're gonna get funds in any other way to, to improve the system. Can PREPA provide the, the solar systems that people need in the mountain? Is PREPA the best organization to, to provide this kind of uh, solar resources, or should, uh, should it be done by another uh, entity? And the ultimate thing is, what is the best thing for the people? I, I would not say that I am defending uh, PREPA, what we need to focus is what is the best for the people, not the best for uh, prepa or prepa workers, but also what's not best for the private interests that are, that are looking to, to private prepa. And, and this is similar to the university, for example. Some people say we need to reduce the government spending or government investment in the university to tackle the politicization in the university. But I don't see that that has been a problem in other places. In other places, the, the, the governor changes from one political party to another, and as far as I know, the president of the university do not change. Uh, but that does happen here. Um, so we need to find a way to, to tackle the issues of a political takeover of public institutions without the need to privatize, because then too many things are, are get involved. If we need to privatize, Let's privatize, but let's do it for the right reasons, and let's do the studies uh, that prove that is the best for, for the people. I really appreciate you talking about the privatization. It seems like it is a real challenge in terms of uh, that, the, as you mentioned, the accountability issues are not really relevant to public or private ownership necessarily, but about the interference of the politicians or, or the government in the management of the utility. I had a couple of thoughts here. One is just sort of a comment, which is interesting 
to hear so much focus on the rates, the electric rates in Puerto Rico. And yet in a lot of other places in the United States, the discussion around energy cost is around bills and a recognition that customers pay a bill, a total bill. They don't pay a rate per se. And it's sort of hard to split that apart. But a good example is that um, electric rates, for example, in the northeastern United States or in Minnesota, for example, might be higher than in the southeastern United States, like Georgia or Florida. Um, but our average electric bills are actually quite a bit lower. And that's because there are many more energy efficiency measures and investments that are made by utilities, uh, usually pushed by state policy in, in those states. And I think that's an interesting potential approach here for PREPA and, and for the future of, uh, to the degree to which people continue to be served by a single utility, a focus on, okay, well, how can we help lower the amount that people pay in total, even if we have to raise rates in order to fully fund the utility company. So, so there is that. I, I also wanted to, to talk about as well, though, so there have been some kind of policy reform efforts, and there are two that I'm interested in getting your thoughts on. Uh, one is this energy reform law, 1121, that uh, some folks are calling the, the Puerto Rican Green New Deal. Uh, it includes a provision for 100% renewable energy, and I think you alluded to this earlier, but that it's you know out several decades in the future. So I'm curious, number one, about how that law might help now in the short term with this issue of resiliency and, and clean energy. And then the second one was that in the last five years, the island's government has established an energy bureau charged with overseeing PREPA. And, and it seems, you know, in this conversation about making sure the utility is accountable, that is perhaps the most successful thing already that it has already done things to help hold the utility accountable and and most recently released some rules for microgrids uh which are you know s small grids that can be run by a community that can either operate independently or or they can operate in connection with the larger grid and it seems to me that you know both this new law and these regulations from the energy bureau that is overseeing the utility uh, could offer some near-term opportunities. And I'm curious if, if what your perspective is on those. This, yeah, these are two good questions. It's a, it's a bill uh, waiting for, for the signature of the government, I understand. Um, it, it has some uh, good, good things uh, because it establishes a mandate for 100% renewable, even though I think it's a little bit far in, in 2050. Um, and also it uh, intends to facilitate uh, the process to adopt more solar uh, power and, and renewables in, in general. So th there are some positive aspects into, into this. I am disappointed, though, that uh, the short action uh, that is needed for what I have uh, called the 200,000 families that spend more than five months without power is, is not included in this um, bill, and that is something that should be uh, the part of the energy uh, public policy. Uh, also, this bill leaves the door open for a potential large investment in natural gas infrastructure as a transition to 200% uh, solar, and that that is also worrisome because we we might not do the best investments if we go too much into build new gas infrastructure if we're really trying to 
uh, go 100% solar in in few decades when this infrastructure might last another uh, 50, 60 years. And also, while there there has been more talk about uh, utility scale solar and utility scale storage, I don't see enough prioritization of rooftop solar. That also gets reflected in the IRP by by PREPA that includes a a good amount of utility solar systems, but not the the rooftop solar. And again, this is where we need to start. We need to start with the rooftops. I I call it the bottom-up grid approach. We need to build a new uh, power grid from the bottom, starting in the rooftops of the houses and business and industry, then look at what we can do at community level, for example, for houses, maybe there are some community centers that that should be uh, empowered with uh, these kind of systems. And at community level also, we could build microgrids that reinforce what already exists in, in maybe many houses, but maybe not all of them can have a solar system for infrastructure problems or shading or things like that, and a microgrid can, can help uh, with that. And if you go up the bottom-up grid, maybe by the time you get to look at mini-grids, if you already have a strong system, the mini-grids might not make economic sense, uh, the kind of investment needed if you already have so many rooftop systems and also uh, microgrids. One problem with, with this approach is that the, the big companies that install big system, major projects like, like uh, one billion and a half generator, if they want to do, make money uh, with solar rooftop, then you need to have uh, hundreds of thousands of small projects. And that's uh, not as good for these kind of big companies. However, it is good for small companies in Puerto Rico that do these kind of installations. Um, so I see it as a win-win, but it could create a problem with, with those interests. Um, about the microgrid uh, development in the island, and there is a, a new rules, and now I, I believe that the, the interconnection rules, uh, there, there is a draft released uh, last month, so it's under review, so that's moving forward, and, and I think that's great. Uh, it's, it's, there's, these are the steps in the, in the right direction, and we need to enable communities to be able to establish microgrids and maybe also find different ways to establish microgrids. Uh, however, again, I think that's not the place to start. We need to start with the rooftops that exist now, and that can be done now without further uh, regulations or rules. And we need to find a way that when, as we add rooftop solar with batteries in thousands, in hundreds of thousands of houses, that uh, those resources could be then used when we build the microgrid at that level. And, and, and perhaps one of the things that I want to research the next couple of years is how to use the solar rooftop with batteries as a precursor of the microgrid and not make it a com- competition between, well, if, if this community, they have solar rooftop and this one have microgrids. No, how can we uh, massively deploy solar rooftop system with batteries and then connect them in the microgrid way to make the, the system more robust because in the end what we want to do is keep the lights on. And from there on, then we are talking about getting to the future 
of um, prosumer, uh, transactive energy, and peer-to-peer energy that could be uh, tested in Puerto Rico if we have this massive level of distributed uh, capacity for generation or for storage. So again, this could be a good opportunity to cover a vulnerability in, that is, is very much needed in the rural areas of Puerto Rico to leapfrog and go to, to the, the next uh, grid or, or the next energy uh, system that we should have in other places. But here, because of the abundance of solar, the high cost of power uh, from the grid and the vulnerability to hurricanes could uh, help to do the transition faster. And also considering that we have an aging infrastructure, the fleet generation fleet of PREPA is about 30 years older than, than the, in the U.S. So something I say is that it's like we're driving a Toyota Corolla from the 1980s. These are our fleet. Um, <laughs> but if we're going to go through a transition that is going to make obsolete all the roads and now all the, all the cars are going to fly, for us to stop driving the little car from the 80s, you know, we're not going to be losing as much as if we just have a brand new uh, Chevy, that, which might be the, the new uh, natural gas infrastructure. So, so I think we are in, in a good position because we have aging infrastructure to make the transition faster and more direct to, to renewables. Well, Marcel, I just want to make sure folks know we will uh, have a link to the paper that you've put together on Choles, on the lost hours of electricity, and on this focus on those 200,000 most vulnerable customers, uh, the microgrid regulations, the bill, the 100% renewable bill 1121, which is possible, will be signed by Governor Roseo before we publish this. Uh, I also share uh, an article that I wrote about a year and a half ago kind of giving some of that big picture background uh, about the colonial past and present uh, of Puerto Rico. Um, Thank you so much for sharing your vision for how Puerto Rico can recover from Maria and invest in the local communities and in rooftop solar. I really appreciate you taking the time. Well, thank you for the invitation, and I hope that this conversation continues because this is, uh, I see as a long-term uh, fight uh, is is always going to be difficult, but I think this energy fight in Puerto Rico is one that we can win, and we can win it for the benefit of the people that need it the most. Absolutely. I, you know, I'll ask you one last question, which is: Is there something that you think folks from the mainland who work on energy issues or who care about local economies can do to be helpful? Um, you know, we are all citizens of the same country, uh, even if we are far apart because of Puerto Rico's location. Uh, but is there something that we could do? Well, one thing uh, to do from anybody in the United States is to go to your congressman, congresswoman, um, and and tell them that you care about about Puerto Rico and what is what is done. We need to be empowered. Um, we only have a, a voice in Congress that uh, we might agree or disagree with whoever is there, but we don't have votes, and and we want. Uh, decentralized power, but the power decentralization that we need is electric power decentralization in Puerto Rico, but also we need a, a decentralized political power. We need communities to have power, not only in Puerto Rico, but in, in, in the U.S. as well. So this part of the uh, fairness uh, for Puerto Ricans and, and in terms of our future, our education system, the university, and also the power 
is something that uh, we can do if, if we mobilize in a major way people that care, independently of their vision uh, of different things, ideology, political parties, uh, we're talking about the benefit of people. And I, and I think that's something we can agree on, and that's what I have focused on, the people aspect of, of energy. 200,000 families that uh, need action uh, in Congress and the government. Um, so we can unite with that, and perhaps if we unite for those 200,000 families, then we can unite for many other things, that, and, and that will be great. That's my, my vision to working for a better future. Well, thank you again, Marcel. It was a pleasure talking to you and also meeting you in San Juan a couple of weeks ago, and uh, I look forward to hearing more about your work uh, in the coming months and years. Thank you, and I look forward to work more with you and maybe some uh, members of your audience. Thank you so much for tuning in to Building Local Power. This is John Farrell, ILSR co-director. I was speaking with Marcel Castro Citriche, co-director of Cojimes at the University of Puerto Rico, Mayaguez, about the island's efforts to build a clean energy system that works for everyone. Check out the show page for a transcript, a link to Marcel's project on Choles, the new microgrid regulations, Bill 1121 for 100% renewable energy, and a commentary I wrote for Green Tech Media back in late 2017, summarizing the challenges facing Puerto Rico after Hurricane Maria. While you're at our website, you can also find more than 60 past episodes of the Building Local Power podcast and show us some love with a contribution to help cover the costs of producing this podcast. You can also help us out by rating this podcast and sharing it with your friends on iTunes or wherever you find your podcasts. Or just drop us a line at podcast at ilsr.org. This show is produced by Lisa Gonzalez and Hiba Murray. Our theme music is Funk Interlude by Dysfunctional. Please join us next time in Building Local Power. Thank you.